Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I am Doug Sweeney here with my co-host Kristen Padilla and today's guest, Dr. Wen Reagan. We have invited Dr. Reagan to speak with us today about the intersection of history, theology, worship, and the arts. And before Kristen introduces him, let me convey Easter blessings to all our podcast listeners. We hope you join with us in celebrating Jesus' resurrection, which enables us by faith to overcome the forces of sin and death and the devil in our lives and in our world. Now, Kristen, would you please introduce Dr. Wen Reagan? Hi, everyone. We have Dr. Wen Reagan in the studio today. He is Associate Director of Samford University's Center for Worship in the Arts in the School of the Arts and is Visiting Assistant Professor of Music and Worship. A leading expert on the history and theology of contemporary worship music, Dr. Reagan teaches courses on church music, worship leadership, and the theology and history of worship. He is also the Director of Worship Arts at St. Peter's Anglican Church in Birmingham. He holds a Ph.D. and MTS from Duke University and Duke Divinity School, respectively. He is married to Casey, and they have three beautiful children. Welcome, Dr. Reagan, to the podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here with you all. We are excited um, to have you to talk to us about this very interesting um, topic of the intersection of uh, theology, worship, and the arts. But first, let's begin uh, with uh, more of a bio. Uh, where are you from, and how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And maybe just a short word about how you got to Sanford. Mm. I hail from the great state of North Carolina, uh, born and raised there. Uh, parents are from there, moved from the tobacco farms of eastern North Carolina to Raleigh-Durham area. So that's where I grew up. And uh, my story of faith, uh, I liken it to a stumbling pilgrim. It's a bumbling, stumbling pilgrim. I, I stumble into things. And so I came to faith in high school. Uh, I stumbled onto a uh, Appalachian service project mission trip, basically, uh, in the Methodist church and came to faith in high school there, uh, kind of blindsided uh, by God on that trip, uh, a little bit of a Damascus Road experience, and then came home on fire for Jesus also was an annoying teenager to my parents, I'm sure. Uh, you know, uh, that was part of my rebellion even. I came from a pretty nominal uh, Christian home. And so to be on fire for Jesus was outside of the norm for the family culture. Um, but uh, sometimes God works in, in funny ways like that. So we had that. And then I uh, went to college at Duke and first went to visit the Methodist um, fellowship group and, and said, hey, I, I've started playing guitar in our worship band at church and want to know if I could play guitar here and, and with your group. And they're like, well, maybe we'll see. We sometimes do that. And it's like, all right, go to the next table over and it's, it's Campus Crusade for Christ. And so that's a weird name. I don't really know what that means, but uh, they seem like nice people. So started talking with them and hey, can I come and play guitar? Dude, you can come play guitar with us tonight. Come rock out for Jesus. So I stumbled into evangelicalism because I had come from a mainline kind of pietist tradition. Um, and it was uh, beautiful and terrifying at the same time. I, I loved it. But the people were great and uh, they loved rock and roll. Uh, and so I found myself there and um, quickly got steeped in kind of uh, an introduction to the re Reformed theology uh, through kind of the Baptist variant. Uh, and then after college, uh, we got married right after college and... 
were at a Bible study um, by a pastor who was starting a, a church plant in the PCA, and they needed worship leaders. And so we stumbled our way into the PCA uh, and spent uh, 10 years there learning uh, the great Presbyterian reform tradition as well. Uh, during that time, felt a calling to seminary um, and onwards to teach uh, in theological education. So went back to Duke um, for seminary and uh, you know, that's a wonderfully ecumenical mainline seminary. And then I was in a wonderfully conservative evangelical denomination. And so the tension there was, uh, it was difficult, but beautiful. Um, I really wouldn't trade that tension for the world. I, I feel like I learned how to bridge uh, different worlds and even how to love my enemies, which was constantly changing uh, and what that was. During seminary, felt a call uh, back to actually my baptismal roots. I had been baptized in the Episcopal Church and uh, felt a call to Anglicanism. And uh, eventually that call materialized. We uh, got called to serve as worship director at a church, All Saints Church in Durham, North Carolina. And so uh, we moved into Anglicanism and have been there for about four years. All the while, did my doctoral work and uh, eventually this job opened up at Sanford um, to help direct the Center for Worship and the Arts and to teach worship and we had heard great things about Sanford and even great things about Beeson and knew that Beeson was here as well. And, and so uh, we leaped, we jumped, and, uh, and that's what brought us here, and we've loved it ever since. When you not only have bridged different denominational traditions, you have bridged different academic disciplines in your own career, which I find fascinating, and I hope our listeners will too. As a church historian myself, I am pleased that you earned your Ph.D. in American Christianity at Duke, but with concentrations in church history, theology, and worship in America. That's an unusual combination. I think it's really cool, but it's unusual. Tell our listeners a little bit about how those things combined in your thinking and what difference the combination has made for the way, first of all, you do your work as an academic, but then second of all, the way you do your work in the church. As an undergrad at Duke, I had the privilege of studying under Hans Hillebrand, who's one of the great uh, scholars of the Reformation. And so I went to seminary expecting to do Reformation studies. Um, but I stumbled again into uh, Grant Wacker's Introduction to American Christianity. And I was enthralled within the first week. I mean, the drama, the palpable drama of dealing with Christianity in America and watching the historical course of these theologies stream through the centuries and not only impact things that happened hundreds of years, impact today. You know, the Going to these churches and and having to experience, especially in the South, this is a church that was built with slave owner money. And how do we deal with that? You know, how do we how do we think about that? How do we process that? How do we figure that out? And that was constantly kind of the barrage that came in that class, and it was never ending. I mean, just kind of punches in the face of, wow, this is the history of Christianity in America. So there was an ugliness, but the beauty at the same time. And to me, it was the mixture of those things, especially thinking back to being a sinner and a saint. And I don't know, I fell in love with the drama of trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian in America. And then how do I teach uh, future pastors even to think about this thing they've inherited and how do they carry it uh, with them? So I was kind of hooked uh, from jumping into that class. And then from there it became biographical. Um, Church history then had been a love from undergrad and then through seminary, theology as well. But I had been leading worship for probably 12 to 15 years at that point in churches. Suddenly my historical lens started to kind of collide with my liturgical lens and, okay, where did this come from? And these traditions I had come out of, the big question that started to emerge for me was, how did rock and roll get in the church? How did that happen? Um, what were the forces that made that happen? And 
you know, when you start to look back on the history of rock and roll, I mean, in the 50s, rock and roll is the devil's music, and it's racialized, right? I mean, there's this sense of, uh, this is what what many white uh, Christians saw as jungle rhythm, right? So they had racialized this this concept. How do we go from that to within the next 50 years? I mean, you, you hardly can step into a church without getting some kind of form of rock, folk, pop music, right, involved. So I was really interested in that, and so I dove into that as my dissertation topic, and I really wanted to see theologically how rock and roll got justified then, and... I think maybe like one of the big kernels that I came away with was evangelicals in America have always done this thing that has both good and bad elements to it. But whenever they, we, whenever we come to a medium, a technological medium, usually it's charged at first ethically. So if you look at radio, radio is, you know, the principality of the power of the air. Radio was seen as this devil's tool. But once evangelicals were a very pragmatic group, once we realized we can utilize a tool or a medium for the building of the kingdom, then we actually hollow out that medium ethically and see it as something that can be filled either with good or bad. So rock and roll then gets this hollowing out and they realize, oh, if we change the lyrics, you know, the medium itself is fine. And of course, we can actually debate there's, you don't just get to hollow out a medium. A medium carries its whole ethical world with it. And so rock and roll, as it comes into the sanctuary, carries this entire invisible apparatus, uh, an industrialization, um, a marketing element, a marketplace element, uh, certain affective or somatic uh, stances, right, as a worship leader, the way you emote um, when you're leading worship. All these things come in invisibly or implicitly. And so I was just fascinated to kind of tease out how that happened, how it gets justified, and then what it means for the church. Well, we want to continue this conversation. It's so fascinating about your research and work. But before we go further, uh, can you say a word about the work that you do at the Center for Worship and the Arts? Uh, What is the mission of the center? Who are you trying to serve? Um, And how are you working toward fulfilling it? Um, And you may also, if you want to win, to say a word about the conference that you're planning in October. Sure. So uh, the Center for Worship and the Arts at Sanford University our mission, we seek to equip congregations to engage intergenerational and artistic worship practices that glorify God, that honor Christ, and that join the transformative work of the Spirit in the world. Uh, big things there. So we equip congregations, and our two big pillars are intergenerational worship and artistic worship. Uh, many churches do both these well, but generally in America, churches have a challenge, certainly with intergenerational worship. Uh, we see much of our worship life is geared towards marketed cohorts of generations, uh, much as our society has been since really uh, World War II, maybe even further back if you follow marketing history in that sense. So we want to counter that because the church um, in its truest form, in its best sense, going towards the building of the kingdom of God is intergenerational. So we want to help churches think about how do we make our worship more intergenerational? And then artistic for us is a holistic practice. Um, many churches are really good at practicing uh, musical arts uh, in churches, but visual arts, architectural arts, spoken word arts, uh, the whole gamut. We're really interested in helping churches uh, to think about that and to equip them with that. So we think of our work really as a bridge. We like to bridge riches. So we have riches here at Samford, um, at Beeson as well, right? This whole kind of Samford community, riches of resources, of faculty research, uh, of programs, and we want to bridge those riches out into our community, uh, out into churches in Birmingham and Atlanta, in, in Alabama and then the southeast region at large. And then, of course, there are riches out in our community that we want to understand better and learn from here at Samford. And so we're constantly connecting with congregations to both provide and equip, but also to learn from uh, through our programs. 
so we can learn how to better serve them as well. Dr. Reagan, you've done some research on the Hillsong movement, and I bet a lot of our listeners know a little bit about the Hillsong movement and probably benefit from some of the fruit of the movement, but some of our listeners probably know almost nothing about it. Can you just give us a brief primer on what's the Hillsong movement? And then more importantly than that, how has your study of that movement informed your understanding of evangelical worship? Yeah, so Hillsong, if you don't know Hillsong, Hillsong um, emerged as a uh, prosperity megachurch in Sydney, Australia. That's where it starts, um, really in the early 80s, and hits American shores with the song Shout to the Lord, uh, which many might know, around 1995, and since then has just become the juggernaut uh, in worship music globally, um, and certainly in America. Um, and so I actually, I have two pieces I've worked on on Hillsong, one with uh, colleague Kate Bowler, um, church historian, theologian uh, at Duke University, uh, who's, who she's focused on the prosperity gospel. And so we were really asking, first, prosperity gospel, what, what does the prosperity gospel have to do with contemporary worship music? Like, what's the historical intersection there? And we found some really interesting things. I think one is that the prosperity gospel through the 80s and the 90s, in many ways, was pioneering megachurch uh, initiatives and endeavors, both um, aesthetically and programmatically. So you think about televangelistic endeavors, you think about the quality of production, whether it be in recorded music or live services and all that. So they're really starting to leverage these things into contemporary worship music as it's, as it's developing in the 80s and the 90s. And Hillsong is probably the best intersection of that. Uh, most people, when they think about Hillsong, they don't think about the prosperity gospel. And partly that's because because the music itself, the lyrics and the music don't really communicate the prosperity gospel, uh, which is a study in and of itself. Um, but if you go and listen to sermons at, at Hillsong Church in Sydney, um, you're going to hear the prosperity gospel, uh, not in a, an intense format. Uh, it's what Dr. Bowler would call soft prosperity. Um, so we, we looked at that and how uh, Hillsong and others had basically leveraged this pursuit of bigger, better, louder worship in a way, because the prosperity gospel, you know, it's, it's interested in celebrating that God has these things for you in your life and to leverage that kind of thematic motif into worship music. And it was a, a, it was a good wedding in that sense for them because worship music was industrializing at that same moment and growing. The second research piece um, that I've done, a book chapter, uh, we did this book last year on Hillsong. In fact, it's the first academic volume, uh, edited volume, specifically focused on, on Hillsong. And it's a group of global scholars across the world that have worked on it. And my question was, when you go and look at newspaper articles or magazine articles in Australia about Hillsong, Hillsong is maligned uh, in its own country. It, it is. Um, people approach it with skepticism. Uh, profit in its own village, right, in that sense. But in America, Hillsong has generally been celebrated. So I was, I wanted to know why. Why, why. why do we have this discrepancy between American media on Hillsong and Australian media? And the result, the end that I came to, the conclusion was that in Australia, Hillsong is incarnated. I mean, it's a church. It's a mega church in the suburbs of Sydney. And so as awesome as its music might have been for most people, the music could not monopolize its attention uh, because so many people were worried about the prosperity gospel, the way it was implicated in politics, both locally, regionally, and nationally in Australia. Um, and then several scandals uh, that kind of came out. Uh, and to be fair to Hillsong, whether or not those actually ended up being um, things that they were guilty of, that was part of the question. But all of these things being incarnated and have to deal with their neighbors in Australia was radically different than in America because in America, Hillsong really appeared in America as a sound uh, or a liturgy even. It was disconnected from a church most Americans 
experienced Shout to the Lord or they experienced Hillsong United starting in the 2000s and didn't even know that it was connected to a megachurch, a prosperity megachurch in Australia. And as I said before, the lyrics don't necessarily communicate prosperity theology. So they kind of took America by storm and kind of were able to either, you know, travel under the radar, the theological radar uh, that would look for that or, or float above it nebulously as this kind of wafting sound. Um, and so I kind of explored that uh, through the different uh, media in America and Australia. And it's really fascinating. I think that they've really conquered the world because they've approached it first and foremost as this uh, band or a sound or a liturgy as opposed to a church. Now, of course, Hillsong is in LA and New York City as congregations now. And you're starting to see articles that are concerned. Well, what does that mean? You know, they, they focus on celebrity a lot. So Americans are starting to experience a little more of what Hillsong is maybe holistically uh, for good or ill. And uh, so it's changing now. But but for the longest time, it was the sound of Hillsong. Hmm. That's fascinating. Another area of research that I think would be of interest to our listeners is your research on Afro-Pentecostal music in early tr- in the early 20th century as a forerunner for contemporary worship music in the late 20th century. Um, what have you learned from this research that would uh, be of interest to our listeners? Yeah. Um, I know when I came to contemporary worship music as a student and started thinking about it, I imagine most Americans too, you think about it's starting with white evangelicals. You think about maybe the Jesus People movement, you know, in the 70s. Uh, and certainly there was a big explosion there. But contemporary worship music as a larger, maybe abstract idea does not start uh, with white Christians in America. Um, in fact, right before that, it was uh, not, not, not even white evangelical Protestants. It was uh, mostly white Catholics, even in the folk mass movement. But long before that, in the early 20th century, uh, it was African-American Christians who really jumped in and created... Um, this new experience of using popular musics and incorporating them into sanctuaries. Uh, and that to me was, I think, really important and fascinating. I think because we, we do, we think of this as a dominant kind of white narrative. Uh, but in the end, like so many times in American history, it's not. <laughs> it starts with African-Americans. And so I went back and really wanted to explore what happened in the early 20th century in Afro-Pentecostalism with music. And it's fascinating because you get the same kind of narrative that white evangelicals later would have to deal with. And that narrative is this one of when you include popular musics into the sanctuary, the tension of these border skirmishes right? What belongs in the sanctuary and what doesn't? What kind of music does? What kind of music doesn't? What's the devil's music? What's God's music? And so as Afro-Pentecostals brought in these instruments and blues and jazz and ragtime into this new kind of amalgamation of music, gospel music, proto-gospel music, really, um, churches were in uproar. And so you'd find middle-class black churches were not going to sing this stuff uh, and would even kind of rail against it. But um, middle-class African-Americans would often go on Sunday evening after going to their church to go hear the Pentecostal music because it was amazing. I mean, it was just phenomenal. Wow, women like Arizona Drains, um, Mahalia Jackson, you know, these women who were doing this kind of amazing music uh, it was kind of underground. So railing against on Sunday morning, but then visiting on Sunday evening. And then Thomas Dorsey, I mean, this brilliant uh, musician comes along and uh, with others too, with Mahalia and others. But uh, amalgamates this further to combine it um, with hymnody in a sense to create black gospel music. So in the teens and the 20s, 1920s, you get this tension. But then by the 1930s, there's this resolution because gospel music starts to finally switch over and it starts to flood middle class black churches. But African-Americans had to deal with this and figure out culturally what kind of music belongs and what doesn't. And it was just fascinating to watch because the the tenor of that and the different patterns and the collateral damage even that happened would then later be 
followed by white evangelicals 50, 60 years later. And so I, I just thought that was a great window, uh, especially in American uh, church history, to kind of look back and say, people have been doing this for a long time, this tension, this war, the worship wars. They happened long before we think they even happened, even in a modern musical sense. So how has all this history and theological education we've been talking about so far affected your own music, When Kristen and I, and I hope lots of our listeners know that you yourself are a composer, you're a worship leader. What kind of worship leader and composer are you? What's your own approach to these things? And what difference has theology and has church history made in the way you do business? Yeah. Great question. I mean, as a songwriter, I often write music with a larger network called Cardiphonia, and we're a national, well, really even international network of worship songwriters. We really try to write into the gaps. And by that, I mean the worship music industry uh, in many ways, honestly, does great work, and there, there's great music that's put out, but there are topical thematic gaps. And so, for instance, we'll put out an album for Songs for Ascension Sunday. We'll put out, we just, our most recent album was on Psalm 119 and taking each stanza of the acrostic and, and running that. Um, I write a lot of um, service music, really, um, for Kyrie's or uh, Alleluia's or Agnes Day's, you know, for my own Anglican tradition, but in a folk rock kind of pop vein. Um, so anywhere the gaps have come in the industry, it really is where I'm passionate about filling for the church, for the benefit of the church. Um, as a worship leader, yeah, I, I, you know, for my students, too, we talk about this a lot. I mean, worship leadership, uh, particularly, I mean, this is true everywhere, but in America, this is particularly important. Worship leadership is primarily a, pastor, a pastoral vocation. It's primarily a pastoral vocation as opposed to um, an artistic um, production or an artistic performance. That's point one, because I think that so many of our students who come in, you know, they're watching Hillsong, Bethel, Elevation, Passion. They're watching these professional artists and their conception is that, okay, this is what worship leadership is. That's part of it, but not at its core. At its core, it's the deep, mundane, regular work of pastoral leadership. And then I think the other big thing that's important to me is this this false dichotomy about performance. A lot of our students come in, and you, you probably, will, I mean, people will hear this in their churches too. Even if, God, please make this so this is not a performance. And of course, there's a certain type of performance, an artistic performance, an entertaining performance that we don't want it to be, right? That's about the entertainer. It should be. That's what. That's why entertainers are amazing. Like the focus comes on them. They do something amazing, and we applaud them. Not that kind of performance. Yet, as any preacher knows. Uh, and the liturgist knows, I mean, the liturgy worship is a performance. Um, and those who are leading it need to have some sense of a godly sense of their performing. Now, what do I mean in that sense? I don't mean, again, focus on us, but I do mean like you're practicing, uh, you're anticipating, you're modeling for your congregation um, what maybe even proper worship or ideal worship, or at least worship that can facilitate their own worship to God looks like. So I try to, my students, I'm trying to pull them away from that false dichotomy because it's, it comes out of a charismatic um, Pentecostal disposition that wants to say anything that's kind of performed or contrived is not authentic. What's authentic is spontaneous or extemporaneous. It's affective in that, and it's emotional in that spontaneous way. Uh, that's just not true. <laughs> God's people for the longest time have been practicing and performing uh, worship. And, and, and God, there's a way to do that in a very godly way. Um, so we, we focus on that a lot. I think that's really important in my own practice is to remember that. And in that, my performance then rests in the performance of Jesus, right? Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the liturgos. Jesus is the worship leader. And he has already provided 
a perfect and obedient performance for us uh, in his life and his death and his resurrection. So I don't have to come and carry the weight of a performance as a worship leader. I can come and rest in the performance of Christ, uh, trusting that it's sufficient for me and for my flock. Uh, and that that's an amazing thing, right, to be able to rest in that. So we encourage our students in that as well. For those listening who are called to uh, worship ministry, or perhaps they have a family member or someone in their church who is looking at colleges or, or graduate schools, uh, wanting to pursue ministry in some kind of uh, worship capacity, uh, talk to us a little bit about what they can find at Sanford, maybe on an undergrad level, and then for a graduate degree, um, maybe say a word about our joint degree that we uh, have with the School of the Arts, uh, that Beeson has with the School of the Arts. Uh, what does this degree offer students, and how do our schools collaborate with one another? Yeah, great question. Um, so for our undergraduates, we have two majors, a uh, BM, so a Bachelor's in Music, which allows you to kind of intensely go into the musical realm, uh, BM in Worship Leadership, and a BA in Worship Leadership, allowing you to kind of, if you want to get more of a broader kind of liberal arts perspective, you can come in that. And we have a minor as well. They're all great programs. We have a lot of ensembles here on campus. So we're a practitionally based program, meaning you're going to come in and get deep theological, liturgical um, you know, kind of elements in the classroom uh, in a liberal arts fashion, but you're also going to have a chance to practice all of that in our ensembles, uh, which is great. So we do that. I, I help direct the campus worship team here on campus for our undergrads, and um, we get to put into practice things we're learning in the classroom. And then as a graduate student, yeah, we have this fantastic joint degree program. So you can come and not only get a master's in music and church music, that's what we call our master's in music and church music, but you can get an MDiv at the same time. And to me, that is just ideal graduate education because, again, back to what I just said, the primary role primary role of a worship leader is as a pastoral vocation. Uh, those two degrees together, that's killer. That's just fantastic. It's what you need, that holistic training. So we're super excited um, about that. And I'm fairly new here to Stanford, so I'm still learning about all the different ways – um, we do collaborate, but I think um, a few things off the top. I mean, we're, we are planning this conference together in October. We're really excited about, and this is really, I think, in many ways, carrying off the, the beauty of holiness is coming in August. And so this will be the beauty of God in worship and preaching um, that we're doing jointly uh, with the Center for Preaching here at Beeson. And we're just super excited about that conference. It's going to be a great time learning about how um, theological aesthetics uh, intersects with our liturgical and homiletical kind of training in worship. Um, another way, actually... We have residents, uh, undergraduate and graduate residents that we um, hire and train and mentor at the center. And this year, I'm, I'm so been thrilled that we've had our first Beeson uh, graduate student with us, which has been fantastic. So uh, I'm looking to um, to build a bigger pipeline there. I, I love Beeson students. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about coming to Beeson, you know, for graduate education and you're interested in worship, uh, come. There is a place for you. Uh, you can come hang out with us at the Center for Worship and the Arts as well. When we're almost out of time, but is God teaching you anything these days in your life, in your family, in your work that might be a real encouragement to our listeners? Yeah. Um, so we're planning every summer, we, we plan a big program called Animate, and it's a, a big summer program to train high schoolers how to lead worship. Our theme this year is rest. And so I've been trying to spend a lot of time uh, in the Word, thinking about rest, uh, time in researching and reading on rest. Uh, resting in God. And man, I mean, we just, we live in a world that that is, I mean, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it. And, you know, we're in a political climate. We're in a health climate at this very moment where we're terrified. 
again to remember that uh, God is a God of rest and God is a God that provides rest. Uh, Come ye who are weary and heavy burdened, right? And I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So that's been on my heart. Um, and that's been such a comfort uh, in these days of uh, anxiety, of craziness around the world that God says, be still, come and rest in me. That is a good word. You have been listening to Dr. Wen Reagan, Associate Director of Samford Center for Worship in the Arts in the School of the Arts and Visiting Assistant Professor of Music and Worship. He is a good friend of ours here at Beeson. He is a fantastic new addition to Samford University. We thank him very much for being with us here on the program today, and we thank all of you for joining us. God bless you. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.